Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks. Slightly unusually, I've decided to do a additional episode this week focused on the events in London over the last sort of week or so since the shooting of Chris Caba on the 5th of September. I, I really thought long and hard about whether I should do something on this, um, what the benefits would be what the risks would be and um obviously with the queen's funeral or the queen's death rather um you know it's been a really traumatic week for the country for all sorts of different reasons and obviously um i think you need to every conversation about chris cabin needs to start and end with this was a um terrible incident involving the death of a young man and um, I don't think anyone in the wider police family, uh, as I said this again and again, I don't think anyone gains any sense of satisfaction from these terrible incidents when they happen. And they don't happen very often. Uh, and I've said this before, that we've got one of the lowest rates of police shootings in the world. And it sort of flies in the face of the received wisdom uh, or the media uh, portrayal of policing, uh, that, that they would have us believe that uh, the UK is a uh, gung-ho, uh, trigger-happy um, country to live in, uh, in terms of policing. Uh, in truth, we are the third lowest in the world. Uh, the only two countries in the world that have fewer fatal police shootings are Poland and Japan. So we have uh, point. This is a consistent figure, by the way, over many years. So this isn't just, you know, I'm not just cherry picking a, uh, a, a good year. This is consistent over many years that uh, the United Kingdom has on average 0.5 of its citizens killed by the police per 10 million of the population. Um, if you contrast that with other European countries, um, Sweden um, has uh, double that. Uh, Germany has nearly uh, three times that. Uh, Finland has nearly four times that. Um, New Zealand nearly four times that. So um, I could go on. You know, France France has eight times more 
people killed by the police every year than in the UK. Um, and, and for those who are, are interested, um, the, the, the biggest sort of hitters, so to speak, um, from, in, from that respect are uh, Venezuela, that has 1,829 of its citizens killed by the police uh, per 10 million of the population. So, so really sitting at 0.5 per 10 million, that's sort of, it's really, really important that people have these facts uh, about police shootings because uh, to try and portray the UK uh, police as trigger happy is, it just could not be further from the truth. Now, I'm not saying that um, because I want to in some way um, minimise what happened to Chris Cabot. And that's not the purpose of this at all. As I said, it was a tragic incident and and I'm 100% sure that every officer who was involved in that incident bitterly wishes that that's not how it ended. Um, so I think, I just think it's really important. Um, I think on balance, I thought, right, okay, you know, I call this Tango Juliet Foxtrot the police podcast. So it would be kind of slightly odd, I think, if I didn't talk about this. But but I want to talk about it in a way that is um, sensitive, is uh, balanced, um, and hopefully uh, to some extent inf informative. Um, and I also need to caveat everything that I'm going to say with, I have no inside knowledge um, into what actually happened, the facts of the matter. Um, even if I did have that inside knowledge uh, through sort of informal channels, I wouldn't be sharing it on this podcast. This is just my thoughts based on what I've seen, what I've read, um, and I suppose my knowledge of policing generally. Uh, what does this actually mean for policing? What does this mean for the Met? How is this likely to be received uh, within the organisation? How is it being received outside the organisation? Um, and what does all of this mean? Um, and that's set against set against a kind of a really weird back backdrop of of the Queen dying um, and and all of the uh, arrangements for uh, her funeral and the succession of uh, King Charles the Third. So it's probably um, best if I just I don't uh, can't assume that everyone who's listening to this understands what happened on the 5th of September and what has happened since. Really need to stress that everything, all the information I'm I'm sort of basing this on is on is open source. So the stuff that you can find yourself uh, from newspaper articles, etc, uh, etc. Et um, as I say, no inside track at all. Um, right, so just to recap in terms of the actual incident itself, and I'll read this, um, which came from, I think, a newspaper in South London. Um, it's a timeline. Uh, September the 5th at around 9.51pm, officers were in pursuit of a suspect vehicle use, using a tactic where they deliberately collide with a car to force it to stop in Streatham Hill, South London. Uh, the chase followed the activation of an automatic number plate recognition camera, which indicated the vehicle was linked to a firearms incident in the previous days. Uh, during that incident, the police firearm was discharged once and Mr. Kaba sustained a gunshot injury. Uh, he received first aid at the scene before being taken to hospital 
um, uh, where he died. Um, the incident was immediately referred to the Independent Office of Police Complaints and they launched an independent investigation. Um, uh, Mr Cabot died in hospital on the 6th, I believe, uh, early hours of the morning. And um, those paying tribute to him described him as a fiancé. He was due to get married in five minutes' time. He's got a baby on the way and he's never going to see that child. Um, on September the 7th, um, the Met described the devastating and lasting impact the shooting would have on Mr. Cabell's loved ones. Uh, September the 9th, the IOPC uh, announced that they were treating the shooting as homicide, um, but stressed that that didn't necessarily infer that criminal proceedings would sort of automatically result from that. And then on September the 12th, I believe, uh, the officer who fired the fatal shot was suspended from duty. So as it's almost always the case with these issues, the reaction, uh, both on you know, social media, the dreaded social media, and within the mainstream media, tends to fall into sort of um, one of two camps. Um, and that those could be summarised as those who are describing the shooting of Chris Caba as murder, and are calling for um, you know the officer to be um, treated, I suppose, as a murderer. And uh, on the other side, there are those who are um, calling for calm and for the investigation to be allowed to proceed. Uh, in order to gather the facts so that a, a decision can then be made as to what is going to happen. But um, unfortunately, it seems in this case that those who are taking quite a, um, I was going to use the word hysterical there, I'm not sure hysterical is terribly helpful, but those who are taking a very hardline view of calling the officer a murderer seem to have the upper hand at the moment, and certainly a lot of what is uh, appearing in mainstream media um, is, is describing Chris Cabba, um, you know, very much as a um, possibly sort of completely blameless individual who um, was effectively shot for no reason by the police. So um, I just thought it'd be useful to try and understand based on open source information that's free out there, you can, I'll point you to it, um, try and understand um, to some extent um, who he was, I suppose. Um, so Again, going back to my point I've just made, it kind of to try and understand that it kind of depends on what you read, and and where you go for that sort of information. So, um, on one hand, uh, the Guardian in an article by Franklin Addo um, today, uh, the headline was: "As the nation mourns the Queen, we are grieving the preventable death of Chris Cabot." a 24-year-old aspiring architect and soon-to-be father. But then if you go to um, the Wikipedia entry for the um, drill 
uh, band group that he was a member of, which was called 67. Um, the group 67, I'll read this directly from Wikipedia. Um, the group has been labelled a criminal gang by the police and has had several shows shut down, including their first UK tour after it sold out due to the controversial form 696. Uh, apparently that's a form which is used to close down um, musical events or any event that's deemed to be potentially um, going to be attracting maybe violence or some form of um, behaviour that the authorities are concerned about. Um, again, reading directly from Wikipedia, in 2018, 67 was identified as running five county lines, uh, drugs routes to neighbouring counties, and 16 affiliates of the group were arrested in July 2019 and sentenced to a total of 61 years. Uh, it goes on to say that on the 5th of September, Chris Cabot, a 24-year-old member and rapper of 67, who was known by his stage name Mad Itch or Maddox, was fatally shot by police in Stretton Hill. Cabot, who had just been released from prison for possessing a firearm with intent to cause fear of violence, was driving an IDA Q8 when he led armed officers in a high-speed chase, uh, and then etc. etc. Um, and then uh, there's a link within that article to another article that goes back to 2018. The title of that article is Canning Time Gunman Charged. Um, and it says, February 13, 2018, gunshots heard in Butchers Road, Canning Town, in the early hours of 30th December, led to a police hunt for the gunman. Now a man has been charged with possession of a farm with intent to cause fear of violence. The man is Chris Cabber, 19, of Bourne Street, London, SE 26. He was charged on the 17th of February and appeared in custody at Thames Magistrates Court on the 12th of February. So the reason I, I kind of um, discuss and sort of bring those two very different um, information sources to light is just uh, to, to sort of illustrate the point that trying to understand in this sort of era of social media and a mainstream media with uh, a, a tendency to um, portray the police, I've got to say, in a very negative light, is that it's extremely difficult to know what's true, isn't it? And, uh, and that is the job of the investigation that will be taking place to try and say, OK, so what actually happened? Um, what was the mindset of the officer who, who fired that fatal shot? Um, and, and then they will put those facts before, um, I would imagine, the Crime Prosecution Service and the Crime Prosecution Service will uh, make a decision as to whether the officer acted um, sort of whether his actions were lawful and justifiable or whether they uh, were uh, criminal and in which case clearly that would then lead to a criminal prosecution so but I, I just think it's really interesting to look at some of those some of that very you know on one hand you've got the Guardian describing him as a uh, aspiring architect and then you've got other information sources there basically saying that he's running around with drug dealers and potentially involved in firearms crime. So, um, you know, I'm not in the police anymore. I, I don't know whether any of that's true or not, um, but it just illustrates the, um, I think, uh, febrile, I think that's the word, isn't it? The febrile atmosphere within which these incidents are playing out. So.
I thought it'd be also interesting to uh, look at some of the other kind of reporting around this. And it seems like um, most of the mainstream media are reporting it in a um, police shoot unarmed man, um, uh, you know, police shoot unarmed black man, introducing that element of race into it um, in, a, in, a, in a, I think, slightly irresponsible way. Um, whereas then you look at um, an article that was published in the Evening Standard on the 6th of September, and I'll read directly from that article because it seems that this this is the only article that seems to be putting a slightly different slant on things. And what they said was, um, I'll quote, a car was chased into our road. This is a witness describing what happened. A car was chased into our road and there was a police helicopter overhead. There was a clang when two of the vehicles smashed into each other. One was a police car and the other of the guy being chased. Armed police jumped out and were shouting at the man, get out of the car. It was at least a dozen times. The guy in the car had a lot of opportunities to stop, but he refused. He then started driving forward towards the police car and smashed into it, then reversed. He just wouldn't stop the vehicle. I heard one shot. From what I could see, he could have killed one of the officers with his car. I don't understand why he didn't stop. So, so again, uh, you know, I don't want to sort of try and second guess, um, you know, what was what was what actually happened, whether that is a an accurate um, description of what happened or not. Um, and I would hope that that per the person who spoke to the Evening Standard on the sixth of September will also be speaking to the police and giving a version of events. And I've also got no doubt whatsoever that the entire thing will have been captured on. Uh, probably a combination of body-worn video, uh, in-car video, and I believe if the helicopter was involved, then there'll be a video from the helicopter from a sort of a different angle altogether. So I've no doubt whatsoever there will be multiple information sources upon which to base um, an assessment of what of what actually happened. But I do think it's important to just talk through some of the implications of all of this. And uh, forgive me if you know, some of the things, if not all of the things I'm going to be saying are going to be stating the believe and obvious or, um, you know, teaching you to suck eggs. But um, I just think it's worth just sort of looking at the sort of general context within which this is all playing out. So, uh, so Mark Riley, the new commissioner for the Met, took his um, affirmation uh, only the other day. And um, his, uh, his new um, dep deputy, um, uh, Dame Lynn Owens, uh, and so you've got a new top team there at the Met. And to say that this could not be a bigger test of the new team is putting it mildly. So literally within days of landing in that job that we all know um, was um, an unbelievably poisoned chalice for Cressida Dick. Um, they are facing um, arguably, you know, the, the single biggest public event in the, you know, what, possibly the biggest public event in the history of the Met with the um, funeral of the Queen and then later the coronation of the new King. And anyone who's been in the police for even two minutes will know what an 
fantastically complex and difficult uh, organisational task. All of that will be um, to ensure the safety of the public um, at those events, which are um, yeah, there's going to be many, many, many hundreds of thousands, millions, millions of people thronging the streets um, in London. So the plan that is very much going to be um, a priority for them. But equally said against that, you've now got a kind of basically the worst possible situation imaginable uh, to have to try and deal with uh, this very, very highly charged um, fallout from the shooting of um, a young man uh, from the black community um, where, where there is this very, very deeply held belief within the black community that the police um, are racist and that they um, target um, young black men and treat them in this sort of very heavy handed way for no reason. So that is a, uh, a nightmare situation. And it's, it's actually very similar to there's a couple of incidents which we've talked about previously in the podcast. So, as you know, I interviewed Tony Long, uh, who was charged with murder. Um, for the shooting, fatal shooting of Azel Rodney. And uh, he was then um, uh, acquitted um, at Crown Court. Um, and then, you know, you've got uh, back in 2011, we had uh, riots all across the UK as a response to the fatal shooting of Mark Duggan uh, by the Metropolitan Police. Um, and, and that that shooting was deemed uh, a lawful killing um, by the inquest jury. Um, so, you know, all these things, I'm not trying to compare Chris Cabo with Mark Duggan or Azel Rudney in terms, I'm not saying he was the same as them, but it's a similar sort of situation in that the police have shot a young black man um, in a in a car um, and and that is now subject to uh, a very intense, very intense scrutiny. Um, and an investigation which is going to take time. It's going to take time, isn't it, to try and unpick what actually happened and then make a decision. Um, so uh, what, what I find quite interesting is that um, we've got a new Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who has been completely silent. And I'm, I'm not expecting her to voice an opinion on uh, the Chris Cabber shooting, um, given you know the sensitivities of it and the fact that you know we've got a lot of other things going on at the moment, um, particularly on Queen. Um, but it's interesting that since she came into office, um, whatever it was a couple of weeks ago, as far as I can see, there has been absolute deafening silence from her in terms of what her thoughts, um, plans, aspirations, priorities are for UK policing which I just think is slightly odd, really. Um, I would have expected something, but I mean, I did lots of digging um, to try and see if I could find anything, but absolutely nothing. Um, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, clearly, there's a major risk of disorder um, breaking out uh, in a similar way to 2011. Um, I suspect that the only reason that hasn't happened yet is because um, the 
some of the decisions made, um, some of the announcements by the IOPC, uh, making it clear that this was treated as a homicide investigation, that to some extent, I suppose, will um, reassure the family. Um, it, it could be, and this is only me guessing, it could be the fact that, you know, because the Queen, everything happening with the Queen, that's probably, you know, made the likelihood of of um, serious public disorder probably uh, less likely. Um, but obviously, as 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 you know, in the weeks and months ahead, um, who who knows? Who knows? Um, and I think we talked about this in one of the previous podcasts, asking the question whether the Met or other large urban forces could cope with another 2011-style uh, mass disorder, um, given the state of resources around policing and the uh, fact that they've got a very inexperienced workforce with something like 30% of the frontline officers having less than three years service. So what do the level one and level two public order trained, um, you know, cadre of cohort of officers look like nationally? Don't know. Um, I, 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 I do feel that in the same way that every other part of policing is struggling to um, cope. Um, I do think that it's likely that those public order resources will be very, very much less than they were back in 2011. So again, that will be a real worry, I'd say, for the new commissioner um, and, and the other sort of chief constables of the large urban forces where those types of outbreaks of disorder are more likely. And I'm thinking about places like Manchester, Birmingham, etc. But there was one thing that really sort of jumped out at me in the last um, sort of 24, 48 hours that I thought was was interesting. And this is the suggestion, I think, initially reported in the Evening Standard and then um, amplified, I think, in the Daily Mail, where there is now a, um, a real sense that frontline officers, particularly firearms officers, are feeling so let down and unsupported that they are seriously considering withdrawing their labour, I suppose. And there's an article in the Mail today, much as I think the Mail is, is like the Beano, but you know what I mean? It's uh, it's it's interesting, they were saying that armed, quote from armed police officers have said that they will hand in their guns and go on strike after their colleague was suspended over the fatal shooting of 24-year-old father-to-be Chris Cabba, they are said to be furious about the IOPC's decision to suspend the officer who shot Mr Cabba in South London. Um, and earlier uh, last month, there was an interesting, um, an interesting entry on the Police Federation website on the 24th of August. Uh, and I'll quote from that, it says, no group of workers is currently feeling more disillusioned than the police officers of England and Wales who do not have the option to strike, uh, much as the Daily Mail likes to. Sorry, I'm just. Uh, uh, much as the Daily Mail likes to describe it as striking and always describes the police federation as their union, which of course it's not. They don't have a union. They're not allowed to strike. Not allowed to have a union. They've got no industrial rights whatsoever. So. Sorry, I interrupted myself there, so I'll go back and read that. No group of workers is currently feeling more disillusioned than the police officers of England and Wales who do not have the option to strike. 
The promotion of disaffection amongst the police is a criminal offence under Section 91 of the Police Act. It carries a sentence not exceeding two years and being placed on the barred list of the College of Policing. They are told their job in society is too important to allow them to strike, yet they are consistently vilified in the media. Rarely do we see an independent, measured or considered response to the overt, overtly sensational stories being broken, often forgetting or ignoring the realities of policing. So that's a quote directly from the Police Federation website. Um, and just thinking about this sort of notion of disaffection. Um, so I just I looked up the, the definition of disaffection, because although I, I think I knew what it meant, I, I just wanted to sort of check. Um, so definition of disaffection is, and this is from the Cambridge Dictionary, a quality of not no longer supporting or being satisfied with a system, organisation or idea. So I'll read that again. The quality of no longer supporting or being satisfied with a system, organisation or idea. And I, I looked up that specific offence of causing disaffection and it's section 91 of the Police Act 1996, and the the um, the offence wording is causing dis disaffection. Any person who causes or attempts to cause or does any act calculated to cause disaffection amongst the members of any police force, or induces or attempts to induce or does any act calculated to induce any member of a police force to withhold his services shall be guilty of an offence and liable on summary conviction to imprisonment for a term not exceeding six months or on indictment to imprisonment for a term not exceeding two years. So that sounds to me, well, as well as sounding a pretty draconian um, threat of criminal sanction. It, it kind of sounds so vague to me as a as a as a offence. I would love to know um, what that would actually look like in practice. So so what is the threshold for that offence to be complete? Um, I don't suppose anyone knows because I certainly and please correct me if you think I'm wrong and there isn't examples that you can quote back to me then I'm all ears. But I can't think of a single instance to my knowledge since that um, legislation came into being in 1996 of anyone being convicted of causing disaffection amongst members of a police force. But I can definitely see how the very existence of that piece of legislation is uh, very worrying for police who on one hand um, have no option to strike or withhold their labour um, and are being, by any definition, treated really badly, really badly by this government um, and, uh, and by the media as well, and very often by their own organisations um, because of, yeah, for all the reasons I wrote about in my book, I'm not going to go back over all of that now, but um, I just don't know what the answer is, frankly. Um, if the police don't feel that they've been listened to, um, then what option have they got other than to um, moan and groan? But when does moaning and when does something stop being moaning and groaning and start being disaffection? I, I don't know, you know. Um, I mean, I suppose if you've got someone who was standing outside 
East Scotland Yard, um, taking the names of, of with a loud hailer and directly um, imploring officers to down tools and withdraw the labour and was, you know, starting a new organisation to, with that as a explicit kind of intent. And that's pretty, that's probably pretty clear to me that that person is, is probably going to get themselves arrested. But um, it, it puts, I suppose, I suppose what I'm saying is it puts police officers in a really, really difficult position because um, they are effectively in a position where they just have to suck it up. It almost kind of doesn't matter how unfair the system becomes that they have nothing, there's literally nothing that they can do about it. And, uh, and I don't even want to pretend that I know what the answer to that is, but um, if you're listening to this and you're not in the police, just give that some thought for a moment and say, well, uh, if I was in an organisation where I felt that I was being treated really badly by the government, I had my pay and my terms and conditions of employment really screwed up, um, I, I was doing a job which felt completely thankless, and then when you do do something that you've been trained to do, you get the full force of the media coming down on your head and all of this very sort of hysterical reporting. Um, I, I just think we need to be really, really careful here. We need to be really careful that we're not going to br further damage an already horribly damaged organisation full of men and women who basically all they want to do is come to work every day and keep the public safe. And it feels at the moment that um, that is just becoming more and more difficult. And if you, if you don't believe what I'm saying, do what I did. I, I've gone into Twitter. Oh, my God. How many times have I created a Twitter account and then um, killed it off? Because I get so um, despairing about the toxic narrative on Twitter and some of the outrageous things that people are saying. And, and one of those things I've, I've kind of and I've challenged directly in, and this is linked, actually linked to the whole Chris Cabot thing as well, was that the charity Mind, um, it's just, I can't, can't believe that anyone thought this was a good idea. So um, the charity Mind, which is the mental health charity, put out a series of tweets uh, the other day, basically saying, we need to talk about Chris Cabot. The killing of an unarmed black man by a police officer is hard to bear, especially when young black men die disproportionately at the hands of the police. The Queen's death is dominating the news right now, but Chris Cabot deserves our attention. Um, racial trauma is real and events like Chris Cabot's death can be incredibly triggering. If you're struggling with the news, please reach out. We're here for you. Which I thought, oh my God, this is such, that is such a bizarre thing to say from a mental health charity. It's the sort of thing you'd expect from a sort of a, le a hard left wing kind of activist group. But not not from a mental health charity, particularly when you've got a situation where twenty percent of of emergency services workers and police officers in particular are suffering from PTSD, and and two police officers in the UK kill themselves every month. Um, I just thought it was unbelievably insensitive, and um, yeah, it, it, I know it, I know lots of people are challenging that particular series of tweets, but it, it just it, I just use that as an example of just 
when when even a mental health charity is turning around and attacking the police, I I think we've really reached uh, a point, uh, the sort of point of, of no return, really. So, um, kind of, I'm not sure, you know, if any of that's been even a tiny bit helpful uh, to try and paint the picture about where we are. I think it's a bloody awful mess, I really do, but then I'm stating the obvious there. I feel desperately sorry for the family of Chris Caba. I feel desperately sorry for the police officers who are involved in that situation. Um, I feel desperately sorry for uh, armed response vehicle crews who are going out day and night and potentially having to deal with exactly that type of situation. Um, you know, who knows what's going to come out of that investigation with the IOPC. Um, it, we'll just have to, time will tell, won't it? And I suppose I would just hope for the sake of everyone, and I include in that the family of Chris Caba as well as the police, that that is done as quickly as possible so that, um, you know, we can learn the lessons or, um, yeah, I just think if, if this whole thing is kept dragging on for weeks and months and months, that's no good to anyone. So if you compare uh, what's going on in that investigation with a typical, in inverted commas, homicide investigation, um, where the, the, so if the police were running a homicide investigation and a, a suspect was identified, they would have that suspect uh, in custody uh, pretty quickly, unless there was very strong reason not to. They would have them in custody very quickly. They would then get an account from that person, um, you know, seize relevant forensic evidence and various other uh, evidence relevant to the case. And they would probably have that person charged or released for further investigation within, you know, typically 72 hours. Um, so uh, I would like to think that given the fact that uh, you've only got one person in this situation who pulled the trigger, um, you would like to think that that investigation would be done pretty quickly because it really doesn't help anyone, I think, uh, to let this whole thing drag on for weeks and months and months. So there you go. Right, I shall be back with uh, another episode in the usual uh, format uh, later on this week. Bye-bye.